never assume that you should not include people with dementia in what you are doing because they will live for the moment and they may not remember tomorrow that yesterday they went to a big family wedding but they had such joy in their hearts on the day when they were there with you and that's what's important. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today I'm very excited to be talking to Angela Rippey. Angela is a long-standing and highly awarded British television presenter who's been working in TV for over 50 years. She was the first female presenter on the BBC, the first host of Top Gear in the 1970s, and the host of many series, including her current show, Rip Off Britain. And she's also a dementia ambassador. After her mum was diagnosed with vascular dementia in the early 2000s, Angela started speaking about the experience and raising awareness for the condition. This conversation was a lot of fun, as we talked a lot about her journey in advocacy, the fantastic progress that's been made, and the next steps for supporting people living with dementia. Before we get to the episode, just a quick note to say we'd love to hear more about you, our listeners. And we've got a really quick survey over at silveradventures.com.au slash survey that'll take less than a minute. So if you've got a spare 30 seconds, we'd love for you to fill it out. Again, that's silveradventures.com.au slash survey, S-I-L-V-R adventures. Don't forget, there's no E in there. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode with Angela Rippin. Great, Angela, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's my great pleasure. I have many friends in Australia, so um, hopefully I should be talking to some of them today as well as to the rest of your listeners. Yeah, well, I hope they're listening. And uh, I'm sure a lot of our British listeners will be familiar with you, but for the Australians and and perhaps Kiwis who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you give us a, a quick overview of your career? quick overview. Well, I started work as a journalist. I wanted to be a photojournalist. So I did um, my apprenticeship in journalism and photography for five years, worked on my local newspaper, got picked up by the local television station because I had lots of bylines on the things that I was doing. So I started working for the local BBC television 54 years ago. I worked for the BBC in the West Country for several years. Then I moved to ITV in the West Country. Some of your listeners may know West Westwood Television, which was very famous in the West Country where I work, where I was a producer, a director, as well as a presenter. And I got the bug to go to London and I applied for a job in London and I ended up working for BBC Television News as a reporter and then as the the first journalist woman newsreader in Britain. It was um, quite a... Quite a phenomenon to have a woman reading the news on national television in Britain. <laughs> and But since then, I've worked on scores of different programmes. Come Dancing, I was the first presenter of Top Gear. Um, I did, I've done all sorts of documentaries and programmes. And well, I've been around a long time, let's put it that way. And I currently work on a programme called Rip Off Britain, which is a consumer programme on television, which I do with Gloria Hunniford and Julia Somerville. Some of your listeners may know of both of them because they, like me, have been around 
down a long time. I make documentaries and I work for about four other programs on the BBC as well. Oh, and uh, yes, and I suppose some people will remember I was one of the founders of TVAM, the first commercial breakfast station in Britain. So it's been a long and varied career, but I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> and still very busy by the sounds of it as well, Angela. Well, I am. I'm very fortunate. And in fact, I think um, it's one of the things that's kept me sane during our lockdown here, because like you, we've been suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic. And there have been quite, not quite as draconian, I think, as the rules that you've had, mm. which as an island has kept, you know, New, New Zealand and Australia very, very secure. Um, but as an island just off the coast of Europe, we've, we've done our best to stay secure. Mm -hmm. We've had lots of lockdowns, but I've been fortunate because... My friends all laugh when I say this, but people working on television are considered to be essential workers. So hmm. I've been, they all look at me and say, what, you? Essential, <laughs> get off. Anyway, so I've carried on filming and recording and being in the studio, and that's really kept me going. And that's what I'm still doing now, working on currently four different programs with um, a couple of other things upcoming for the rest of the summer. So it's been very busy for me. But like everyone else, obviously, I've I've missed not being able to have close contact with friends mm. and relatives. But um, we're gradually getting around to that as well. Yeah, fantastic. And, and something that you've been involved in since the early 2000s is Alzheimer's advocacy, right? How yes. did you get involved in Alzheimer's? Well, my late mother, Edna, um, developed frontal lobe vascular dementia within about six months of my father suddenly dying of a, of a massive heart attack. And I mean, I think the research that's been done into dementia in general, and as people involved with, in dementia will know, there are more than a hundred different variants that you can get of dementia, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's probably being the best known. But what some of the research that we've done demonstrates that the the process of, of dementia can begin in someone's brain something like 20 years before it actually manifests itself. Mm. And then it can suddenly be brought on by something like like a sudden shock, which I think is what happened in my mother's case. She, within six months of my father dying so suddenly, she became quite distracted. She became very agoraphobic. She became very um, suspicious of people. And suddenly all of these things started to build up. And my father died in 2003. And in 2004, we got a, a diagnosis of vascular dementia in my mum. And... Albeit that I'm a journalist and I've worked in my career in television on medical programs, I knew very little about dementia, which says more about dementia, I think, than it does about me, mm. because we're talking now about 2004. And as with so many countries, certainly back in 2004, dementia was very much a subject that people did not dis discuss openly. Mm -hmm. The word stigma was very, very strongly attached to it. There was a stigma. We know that people would perhaps not admit, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, you know, granny's gone a bit doolally without wanting to admit that actually what granny had or your dad or your partner or whoever was actually a severe physical illness of the brain. And our knowledge of dementia was relatively narrow as well. And I knew very little about dementia. So I contacted the Alzheimer's Society, who were an enormous help by giving me lots of information about what was happening to my mum, what was likely to happen in the future, how she was likely to respond, and how, importantly, how I should respond. And so I became an ambassador for the Alzheimer's Society. And from the very beginning, I realised that there was a huge job ahead of us 
we're talking, what, almost 20 years ago, aren't we, if we're talking about 2004. And I remember doing an interview with a national newspaper about my mum's condition because I felt it was important as a journalist and someone who had a, a public profile that I would get out there like a lot of the other ambassadors and talk about it and take away the fear and the misunderstanding and the stigma that was associated with dementia. And I remember during the interview, it was a lady journalist, she said at one point to me, um, aren't you embarrassed talking about this? Wow. And yeah, you see, your reaction now yeah. is what I would expect. But then it seemed to her to be a perfectly normal thing to, to ask because people did not talk about dementia or Alzheimer's in public. Mm. They did keep it tucked away within families. They kept it in the shadows, if you like. And I was very determined that it should be brought out of the shadows and into the public spotlight so that people stopped being embarrassed about it, if you like. And I remember saying to her, well, people aren't embarrassed anymore to talk about Parkinson's or if their families had a stroke or, or even, you know, the, the big C, which everyone used to refer to cancer. People mm. talk openly about it now. And that's really important. And I think that was what spurred me on to do as much as I've done over the last, what, 18, 19 years to try and do precisely that, take away any embarrassment in, associated with it and try and add to the, to the national sum total of, of knowledge about dementia. And my goodness, in those 18 years, we've made enormous strides, not down to me personally, but to lots of people who have who've taken that same lead and taken that same opinion. And, you know, as a result, we've had not just lots of information about it in newspapers and stories about people with dementia in newspapers, but we've had it included as a running story in many of the soap operas. Mm. Some of your listeners may be aware of the, the long-running soap opera on Radio 4, The Archers. They had a, a five-year running story about dementia, how it affected an individual and the families around them. EastEnders had a great soap opera here in Britain on television, had a storyline on dementia. So I think did... Hollyoaks, one of the others. Then we had two Oscars given to performances from people who have had dementia. The most recent being just a couple of weeks, just well, a couple of days ago now, for the father, for Anthony Hopkins. Because dementia now is seen as something that people should know about and can know about. And those wonderful storylines take it to a whole new audience mm. for people being able to understand what it's about. So, you know, in 2004, when I got involved with it, my goodness, I've seen so many changes, thank goodness. But we're still, we're still only halfway there. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, that is a fantastic amount of progress there. Did you find that after the first couple of interviews, when you're having these sort of questions about shouldn't you be embarrassed? Did you have people reaching out to you, people contacting you saying, thank you for speaking up about it? Or did anybody kind of contact you on the back of those? Oh, totally, yes. Through the Alzheimer's Society, through my work on television, yes. And in fact, in the subsequent years, I've spoken at many national and international conferences, pitching it to a particular audience. I convinced the National Association of Local Governments here in Britain to give us their support so that local governments would start to follow up on a scheme that the Alzheimer's Society began, which they pinched from Japan, incidentally, <laughs> called uh, Dementia Friends, which is mm -hmm. getting people to understand. And I think you have it in Australia as well now and mm -hmm. in New Zealand, getting people to understand dementia 
culture and how they might help, whether they're people that work in shops and offices, banks, supermarkets, uh, on the telephone, whatever, you know, to understand that they might be dealing with someone with dementia and how they can help them, uh, but also for friends and family to understand more about it. And that has subsequently grown into a situation where I was asked in 2012, along with Jeremy Hughes, who was the chief executive officer of the Alzheimer's Society, by the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, if we would establish a committee called the, the, the Prime Minister's Champions to create dementia-friendly communities in Britain, mm. which is, in other words, going into local government going into large businesses, into corporations, into schools, and getting people to accept as a community that they could learn more about dementia and support their own dementia community. And I remember at the first meeting that we had with, with David Cameron, he said, this was in 2012, and he was going to be in office for the next three years from then, I think. Um, he said, you know, by the end of my term of office, I would like to think we have 20 dementia communities around the, the, the country. And I remember saying to him, well, if we're going to do our job, Prime Minister, you can add a naught to that. I'm hoping we're going to have mm -hmm. at least 200. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we exceeded that and have done, and we now have hundreds of dementia-friendly communities. Because I took a community to mean not just a city and cities like Birmingham and Manchester and Blackpool and Plymouth. Plymouth, in fact, my hometown, I'm proud to say, was the first dementia-friendly city mm -hmm. in the country and others followed. But there are also dementia-friendly communities that we've established in thing in... <laughs> if you like, corporate mm -hmm. divisions. In other words, we got the banking sector to say, we're going to train all of our staff in how to deal with people with dementia so that if somebody came in, say, three days in a row, drawing lots and lots of money, um, the staff would recognise perhaps there was something there that wasn't quite right and they could say, are you absolutely sure about this? I mean, that's things to do with um, recognising and acknowledging lasting power of attorney with people. We then got supermarkets so that Perhaps people, you know, sitting at the checkouts would recognise if somebody was was buying suddenly, I don't know, say 12 bottles of washing up liquid or whatever. You know, they would be able to say gently, are you sure you need 12? You know, mm. why not just take one? But IT, uh, we got British Telecom involved so that when people were discussing um, anything technical on the telephone, they would recognise whether or not someone perhaps had dementia and how they might deal with them. We've done it with transport services, taxi services across the country. In Blackpool, for instance, they have a wonderful system in Blackpool where people look after the drivers recognise people with dementia. So we went to lots of different organisations and produced something like 16 books on code of conduct for each of those areas mm. within the country. I suddenly realised one day it was all very well having dementia-friendly communities where we talk to adults, mm -hmm. but we needed a dementia-friendly generation of young people mm. who would, through school, learn what is dementia. They might recognise it in their grandparents, in their, their parents' friends, their godparents, their aunties, their uncles. They would recognise what it is and know how to deal with it. They would learn about dementia. They would take that knowledge back to their families. They would grow up with that knowledge and take it into their maturity, not be afraid of dementia. And whatever line of work they went into, whether it was nursing or banking or, or working in a local shop or in insurance or whatever, they would recognise dementia and know how to deal with it. So we would we would have this 
network, if you like, of, of humanity, of individuals, of communities, understanding people with dementia and how to support them and their families. And we, for instance, with children, we've, we've, done, we've now got over a thousand schools in Britain that are involved in this and have dementia awareness programs as part of their curriculum. And we started with primary schools. I mean, you know, older children, you expect they're going to understand. Mm -hmm. But we, we, in Kent, in the county of Kent, the schools there did a wonderful thing where they got the children in schools to write diaries if they had someone with dementia in their family. And we had some wonderful things that came out, like one little lad saying, I love going out with my granddad because he always does daft things, so we laugh all the time. Um, <laughs> and another one saying, my granddad gets up at three o'clock in the morning sometimes and, and he'll put on a sweater and then he'll put on another sweater, then he'll put on another sweater and another sweater and then he'll wake up my mum and she shouts at him, but I just think he looks like the Michelin man and I think he's funny. So you have children with this this wonderful naivety that accepts people with dementia. And we, we then started a program where we got local schools going into care homes locally and joining in craft projects with people in care homes, people who have dementia, but people who didn't, you know, people who were in a care home because they were elderly or, or felt that, you know, that was where they needed to be to be safe now. Over the years, we've built up this amazing network in commerce, in, in industry, in schools, of people who are aware of dementia and who are therefore able to help the police service, for instance, mm -hmm. fire brigades, you know, everybody you can think of that's going to have any kind of contact with someone who might have dementia so that we don't have, for instance, the appalling situation I was reading about last week that happened in America where two American police officers arrested a woman of 73 who has dementia. She had left a supermarket with $13 worth of food mm. that she hadn't paid for. You know, something that someone with dementia is actually likely to do. Mm. But in, you know, I, in Britain, if that had happened, I would hope now because of the training that we've done with police forces throughout the country, that a police officer would treat that person with dignity and realise what they need is help. So, as I say, I'm, I'm just delighted at the way that so many people in Britain now have, have acknowledged what dementia is and how to deal with it. And you say, did people get in touch with me? Yes, not only to, to speak at conferences, but friends, family. Mm. Friends would ring me up and say, Ange, what are we going to do? My, my dad, I know, has got dementia and he started screaming at me and, and, and he's really difficult and he won't go out. And I'm able then to share with them my personal experiences and say, well, look, when my mum did that, I learned the hard way that it's not my mum screaming at me and being, as she was at times, quite vicious in what she was saying. This is the dementia talking. You have to let it wash over you and at an appropriate time, change the subject. Take their mind elsewhere and it'll work. And just, just be aware that all of these things are going to happen. And when they say, my mum used to say things like, I'm going to have tea with your granny this afternoon. Now, my granny died when I was four years old. Mm. So had been dead a very, very long time. And there was no point me saying to my mum, oh, mummy, don't be silly, you know, granny's dead, because that would upset her. Mm -hmm. She would withdraw within herself and, and say, oh, oh, and become really distressed, perhaps because in her mind she thought my granny was still alive. It's much easier to inherit that parallel universe and say, oh, really, you, you're going down to the village then, you're going to have a cream tea with granny this afternoon, mm. and change the subject. And things that I learned dealing with my mum 
I've and things that the Alzheimer's Society are aware of and they pass on. I'm always I feel very privileged when people, complete strangers sometimes come up to me and say, Can I talk to you about my aunt or can I talk to you about my father? Because I, I they've got dementia and we're not quite sure how to deal with them. Mm. And I am always more than happy to stop and talk to people and assure them that don't get distressed yourself. And there are things you can deal with. And this is how you might do it. And I think, you know, that's the point of being an Alzheimer's Society ambassador is sharing knowledge and, and sharing, if you like, comfort with people to say it doesn't have to be terrible. It doesn't have to be the end of their lives or the end of your life. There are ways that you can deal with this. And certainly there are ways that you as an individual can cannot feel unhappy or distressed when your 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 partner or your loved one is unpleasant towards you because it's just the dementia speaking mm -hmm. and all sorts of other ways in which you know i can help them with you know accessing social services getting over the getting over the feeling of total sometimes betrayal but always guilt if it comes to the point where you feel you have to put your loved one into a care home as mm -hmm. i did with my mum I looked after her at home and I had a live-in carer at home because I was away filming a lot, obviously. So I wanted to keep her in her own environment for as long as possible. But eventually, my mother's social nurse said to me, look, she needs 24-7 care. And even though I had somebody living in when I wasn't there, my mum would sit on the end of the carer's bed at three o'clock in the morning, having lost all concept of time, waking this poor woman up saying, why aren't you doing my breakfast? You know, I, I need to have a shower. Well, you know, come, and t come and help me get dressed. So the poor woman was never getting a full night's sleep. And my mum's dementia was becoming more and more difficult to manage. And I had to make that terrible decision, which said, mummy, I can no longer look after you. You need 24-7 specialist care. And she went into a, a care home locally in Devon, which was, was lovely, where the staff really did look after her. But I've been to so many care homes and I've spoken to many members of families who say, I just feel guilty having, you know, I can't mm. care for my mum anymore or my father, my partner. I have to put my trust now in the care home to ensure that they will look after my loved one in the way that I would, but I still feel guilty for doing it. So... Mm. I do always feel privileged when people talk to me and ask me to help them or, or ask me to go and, and, and talk to their conference or whatever, because that is the only way when people are open and honest and, and talk about these things in public, that more and more people will recognise what having dementia means and that it doesn't have to mean the end of life, that you can live well with it for a very, very long time. Mm. And and if I'm able to do that, then, then I feel I've justified the... <laughs> the various um, the various awards or, or whatever that I've received for the work that I've done. You're listening to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. And we want to thank all of our listeners and subscribers, especially those people who've shared this podcast with a friend or colleague. Because of you, we've just entered the top 50 mental health podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and we're one of the fastest growing health podcasts in Australia. We're looking to take the Age Care Enrichment Podcast to the next level by partnering with great organisations to showcase their message with our rapidly growing audience of Age Care executives and people working within the industry. If you'd like to discuss what an advertising opportunity with our podcast can mean for your business, send us an email 
we're at acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R adventures. Remember, there's no E in there. Now let's get back to this week's guest. Fantastic. And I know you, you've produced a, a piece of television for the BBC, The Truth About Dementia, right? And, mm. and there's a segment in that that, unfortunately, I'm region locked over here in Australia that I couldn't get the video for it in the iPlayer. But there's a section there where you were you were looking to see if you had any susceptibility. And what was that experience like for you? Well, I suppose, first of all, I was quite confident in doing all of the tests that were involved mm. because Alzheimer's or dementia is not, um, it's not genetic. Mm. There is a form of um, dementia, which is genetic, and that's early onset, but that you get that in your 30s or your 40s. And I spoke to some very brave people who, one gentleman who knows that his, his brother and his father and his grandfather all died with dementia very young. Mm. And he was in his 30s. He had to leave the army because he was uh, diagnosed with dementia in his 30s. And he was very brave talking about it, recognizing through what had happened to his brother, what was going to happen to him. Mm. And I spoke to other people who have dementia in their family and they have the, the early dementia gene. Um, who are taking part in a, an amazing set of um, research that's being done at Queen's University in London, not knowing whether or not they've got the gene, not wanting to know whether or not it's going to happen to them, mm. but being prepared to do tests regularly just so that the the researchers can follow the progress of early onset dementia. So I'm, <laughs> as I, I think I was in my 60s or late early 70s when I made that film, I, I knew I didn't have early onset dementia, so that was yeah. fine. And I went through lots and lots of tests. And I think what came out of that was an appreciation of and a vindication of the research that's been done, which demonstrates that although, yes, the, the signs of dementia can start in the brain 20 years before it actually manifests itself, that basically... In the same way that you need to keep your body fit if you want to avoid your muscles atrophying mm -hmm. and, and not being able to do things, you know, in your 70s and your 80s um, in the way that you would like to. Similarly, the cells in the brain can not exactly atrophy, but they can be covered in a thing called beta amyloid, which is a plaque, which the best way to describe it is that it just, like like things that fur up your arteries or fur up your plumbing, beta amyloid is a plaque which can attach itself to individual cells and actually strangle them and kill them. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you get dementia or Alzheimer's. And if you keep your brain active, then it will certainly delay or prevent altogether the fact that you're going to get dementia. Not in everybody, because, you know, people who never smoke get lung cancer. People who, you know, have led very healthy lives could suddenly drop dead of a heart attack. Because, you know, <laughs> there are certain things in medicine over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever. And the dementia, along with a lot of other illnesses, is one of them. Mm -hmm. But we can do things to, to keep our brains healthy in the way that we can keep our bodies healthy. And one of them is, one of the things we discovered was that if you are constantly challenging your brain, particularly if you challenge it to do something new that you've never done before, then you are likely to, the, the chances of you getting dementia are certainly diminished and reduced. And um, one of the things that we certainly discovered was that learning a language mm. is the most effective thing you can do to prevent dementia. Wow. And this was based on research that was done in India, where they find that 
dementia is is not particularly prevalent among people in India mm-hmm. because so many of them have to learn at least three languages. They have their local dialect, they have to learn English, and they have to learn the, the, whatever the national language is in their part of India. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly going from one language to another and the brain cells are, are permanently working. So we discovered that and they sent me off to learn Chinese, which I was not terribly good at, but I still remember <laughs> some of it. But the job that I do means that, you know, I constantly have to to use my brain mm-hmm. to to learn things, to remember things, to write things, to research, to to when I'm doing live television on air, you know, to keep my brain working so that what I do um, means that my brain is in, in gear with my mouth and what comes out at the other end is understandable and comprehensible. Mm-hmm. And you, you very rarely get people in, in broadcasting or acting, for instance, who get dementia, very mm. rarely. And that's because they're constantly having to learn and retain that information. So it was an interesting exercise. I I don't think I was, and I, I don't mean to sound sort of you know grand about this, but I don't think I was too worried mm-hmm. that I was going to come out with dementia. But you know, I'm now seventy six, and and I do forget things, and I I work on the principle that having lived for seventy six years, my brain's full of rather a lot of things, and so perhaps yes, things will drop out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, people will say, they'll forget something. They say, oh, God, I'm getting dementia. No, you're not. Dementia is something quite different. You know, just just forgetting things, I think, is something that you're allowed to do the older that you get because you've got so much in your brain that you've got to try and retain. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and what you're saying there really ties into to something else you've spoken about. As we're getting older, not ceasing the activities that we're doing, really engaging in, with life all the way through and... And I know that you have a bit of a history of breaking stereotypes. There's a fantastic clip from the first episode of Top Gear where you're talking about being a woman and being someone who likes driving cars. Yes. What a radical idea that might be. <laughs> but what what are some stereotypes about older adults or about people living with dementia that you'd like to see eliminated? I think older people in general, age is only something that appears on your birth certificate. It, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the way that you think or the way that you lead your life or the attitudes that you have, or it shouldn't. You know, as you get older, that's not an excuse for atrophying. It's not getting old. It's, it might be a perfectly good excuse for saying, well, I'm going to slow down a bit because I can't now do in my 70s what I did in my 30s. But my goodness, you can still achieve a huge amount. You, you can go on living every day to its fullest. You don't have have to sit at home just watching television all the time. Oh, I mean, unless you want to be a television critic in your 70s. But you know, life is full of so many wonderful opportunities, potentials and possibilities that I, we don't... Life isn't like a, a video recorder or a, things that you watch on television. We don't have a replay button. Mm. We can't go back and do bits again. We can't. We might want to, but no one's in it been able to, you know, medically make that possible yet. So you have to do everything as if it's the first time and the last time and make the most of it. And I I think perhaps previous generations might have thought that way. I suspect that the generation that I belong to and the ones coming after me don't think that way. I'm sure you don't think that way. And you're much younger than I am. You know, life is full of so many potentials that why would you then want to let them pass unless you are happy doing that? Mm. I mean, I have many friends for whom retirement means they're able to work on their garden. They can play more golf. They can play more tennis. They can sit at home and read. They can spend time with their grandchildren. In other words, 
their lives are full of things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think retirement and, and age in itself means that you probably stopped doing the job that you've been doing for a lifetime or several, you know, you may have done several jobs in a lifetime. And you're now given the opportunity to do what you want. And I think that it's it's a terrific time of your life if you've still got all your marbles, to be able to demonstrate that actually you are still, of course, a very valuable member of society in all sorts of ways. A company here in Britain, I don't know if you have them in Australia, called B&Q, some years ago were one of the first to make it a company principle that they employed people who were retired, who wanted to go back to work because Mm. they needed their age and experience and they needed them to be there to help younger people, perhaps who didn't have anyone as a a mentor in their own family. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, it you know, it made such a difference to the to the consumers' appreciation and experience when they went into those stores because there were people who knew what they were talking about and were able to work with younger people. So I don't think we anyone, let alone elderly people themselves, should write off a generation just because you've reached a particular age that corresponds with what it says on your birth certificate. We shouldn't do that because everybody can still, uh, goodness me, I think, I don't know about Australia, but certainly here in Britain, I think that the charitable organisations would grind to a halt if they didn't have retired people who are running the charity shops and being the ones who are out collecting and doing all of those things that people mm. who have a nine-to-five job or or are working haven't got the time or the opportunity to do. So, you know, let's get rid of this idea that when once you hit a particular age, that means that you're no longer useful to society because there are so many... When I was making a film on how to stay young, we went to Japan and one of the people that we interviewed was a 92-year-old surgeon who who was still, or had still, up until about six months before we interviewed him, still been working in surgery. He was so sharp and so bright and his hands were still solid, but he couldn't do surgery anymore because his legs were giving out. He couldn't stand up for eight hours doing major hip surgery or whatever. Don't ever write people off. That's the first. And and as an individual, don't allow yourself to be written off. You've still got so much to offer, all the years of experience that you've had. But it's a time when you, you should be able to do what you want to do. And if that's contribute in some way to, to a workplace or to society or to your family, that's brilliant. And mm. if what you actually want to do is sit at home and read, that's good too, because you're probably going to read the books you've always wanted to. And as for people with dementia, they are and can still be very, very valuable members of society. Not everybody that has dementia is completely incapable of holding a conversation or driving a car or being a, still a worthwhile and active member of their family. Just to give you an example, one of the things that, that was really important in the research that we did for, for the film on, on dementia was recognizing and getting people to recognize that even though somebody who was in the later stages of dementia, who perhaps could not remember who everybody was, they, they lived in a little parallel universe of their own. And they didn't remember what, they might have remembered what they did in 1952, but couldn't remember what they did yesterday. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter because they still lived within the moment of the day. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that day was still important to them. And my hairdresser is somebody who is a member of 
quite a large Italian family and they were having a very large Italian family wedding. And my hairdresser, Anthony, said to me, it's my cousin's daughter who's getting married. And my, uh, because his mother um, is in a care home and has dementia, um, they're not going to invite her to the wedding. And I said, oh, my, you might. He, he said, you know, they're afraid that she won't know anybody or whatever. No, I said, you must invite her to the wedding. Of course you must. Anyhow, I saw him about uh, six weeks or so later. Mm. And I said, how did the wedding go? And he said, we had the most fantastic time. My cousin's mother came. Yes, she has dementia. She didn't have a clue who anybody was. Um, she didn't know who the pretty girl in the white frock was. She she sort of recognized her son, his cousin. Mm -hmm. He said, but she had the best time. <laughs> she was dancing. She was singing because, again, what we've discovered is the part of the brain that remembers music is the last bit to go. Mm. And even though they may not remember the name of all their children, they will remember the name of the song that they were singing in the 1960s and the 1970s with the Beatles and the, the, the Beach Boys and the rest of them and, and, mm -hmm. and Wham! and whoever. So she was dancing, she was singing, she was having the time of her life with a pile of strangers who were her close family. <laughs> she had a fabulous time and we've got great photographs. I said, exactly. Mm. Never assume that you should not include people with dementia in what you are doing, provide, you know, physically providing that they're still able to do it because they will live for the moment and they may not remember tomorrow that yesterday they went to a big family wedding, but they had such joy in their hearts on the day when they were there with you. And that's what's important because the day after they may have forgotten it, but something else will come along that will keep them really engaged and involved and happy. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. And that's a, a fantastic story to wrap up on today. Angela, thank you so much for sharing all your expertise and, and your background in this area. It's been really fascinating and probably the easiest interview I've ever done. I, I think I asked two questions and, and we oh, got I'm everything. So sorry. No, no, it was it was great. Thank you. It, it was uh, it was wonderful to to hear you weave in all the kind of areas that we were gonna go with it. So that was perfect. Thank you so much. The trouble is you're talking to me about something about which I'm actually quite passionate. And uh, yeah. I'm sure as an interviewer, you know, when you're talking to someone who has a passion for something, they are difficult to shut up. So you should have, you should have just Not waved to me and said, <laughs> <laughs> and said, stop, shut up, Ripon. I want to ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. That was, it was great to let you go over there. Thank you so much for your time today, Angela. My pleasure. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silveradventures.com.au. See you next week.